0: This episode of American Farrier's Journal podcast is brought to you by SmartPack.
1: Hi, this is Jessica, SmartPack's National Director of Equine Health Education. SmartPak knows that the most important part of hoof health is consistent quality maintenance from you, the hoof care professional. But as you
0: know, some horses need extra nutritional support to maintain hoof horn quality and growth rate. At pack we offer a variety of hoof supplements for all needs and all budgets, and we'd be happy to help your clients find the perfect supplement for their horse. They can call our
1: highly trained team at 1-800-461-8898
0: or visit us anytime at smartpack.com Welcome to the American Farrier's Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Simon Curtis is known worldwide as a farrier and a lecturer, and earlier this year he became Dr. Curtis, adding PhD to his already lengthy list of credentials. His thesis was on the effect of loading upon hoof growth and hoof shape in thoroughbred foals. In this episode, the British farrier discusses his long family history in farriery, his joy from still getting under a horse after five decades of shoeing, Newmarket as a racing center, In his views on the industry. He begins this episode by discussing his entrance into his family's trade. As far as I
1: understand, I know that my family was shoeing horses 150 years ago. Now, as it happens, the earliest recorded farrier in Newmarket had a forge about only 50 yards from my present forge and his name was Richard Curtis. And that was in the 1720s, which I believe is before America was invented. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, people didn't move about so much then. So that is really too much of a coincidence. Um, I know my family in the 1900s were about only six miles from Newmarket. Uh, and so they moved back in. Um, I have pictures of my. Uh, great grandfather, uh, grandfather, and great uncle in about 1905, all with their aprons on, standing outside a forge, um, not far from Newmarket. Uh, so, so that was uh, so we have a long-term history, and they were, as many were in those days, uh, blacksmith farriers. And in fact, even my father trained as a blacksmith farrier, and during the Second World War, he. He wouldn't go into the army, into the British Army as a farrier. He had a bit of a downer on, on on British Army farriers, which I certainly do not in this day and age. So he went in as a blacksmith, and he used to mention he used to mend the tank tracks. You know, the tank tracks are forever yeah. breaking, and um, and that was his job as a blacksmith to re rivet them. Uh, so he. He didn't see action in as much as he never fired a gun himself, but he certainly spent time in a trench under fire, and he went over on D-Day 6, so he didn't go over on D-Day 1. But six days later, he was one of those that followed up and went with the tanks, and and that was his job. And he went across North Africa. But when he came back to Newmarket, still as a young man, uh, because he, uh, I think probably by the time the war ended, he was still only 20... And all he wanted to do, as he told me, was to get back to Newmarket and racehorses. Um, he, he was never one for, um, shall we say, an army career. He was, he was quite happy to fight for his country while the war was on. But the moment it was finished, he just wanted to get home and get back to his horses. Um, and him and his three younger brothers built quite a business in Newmarket during the 50s, and 60s, and uh, I began in 1972. My older brother, Mark, followed in 73, and my younger brother, Nick, followed in 74. So then for a short time at our forge in Newmarket, there were actually seven Curtises, and there was probably another 13 farriers, farriers and apprentices. So that was a big, big operation, and we had 13 fires in our... Forge, the same forge as I'm in. Uh, we now only have four because that's all we need. Um, but I can remember days when all 13 fires were going. And that was hot and noisy, you can believe, because we had made all our own shoes as well. So it, it was quite something to behold.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you said you you started in 72. You you passed the diploma of the Worshipful Company in 83 were you instantly just working on the racehorses or could you tell us a little bit about yeah, no, about I, what Newmarket's my, about?
1: Okay. Well, Newmarket is uh, the home of horse racing. It was, I would say that it's, you know, the moment two people sat on the back of a horse, which was probably somewhere in Asia, about 5,000 years ago, they would have, uh, they would have bragged that their horse was faster than the other one. And they would only be able to settle it with a race. So, Newmarket did not invent horse racing. But what it did was it was the first place that codified it. And and all over the world, horse racing uh, is run by very similar rules that were codified then. So it was the first time there was organized horse racing. So the Jockey Club, which rules racing um, uh, in the UK and there's similar organizations all over the world, um but that 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 came about 200 years after racing began in Newmarket, because of course, um, racing and gambling is a recipe for arguments, and they in the end they had to have an, they had to have an organization that could settle arguments, and that's really why it came about. Um, but Newmarket was founded by uh, James I of England, who was actually James the Six of Scotland, so, it's the first time we had a king of both England and Scotland, and much as he's known for that, I think he's better known for founding Newmarket and racing. He, he liked his racing, and that was, I think, in 1602. So a long time ago, um, and obviously it's changed. It was a, it was probably a town of maybe 300 or 500 people then. It's still not very big. As you know, it's um, I think the population is fifteen or twenty thousand, and there would be about that number of horses in the town at the busy times of the year. So it's still a a town with more horses than people, um, and it still has that great tradition of um, both rearing race horses at stud farm, and uh, and training them and racing
0: them. Yeah, so you know, yeah, in, in getting back to your early days, that was the primary focus of your work.
1: Mm-hmm. It was. I, I learnt to shoe on the racehorse, and I know that not just in, in the UK but also in the States, there is sometimes a thing about farriers where they turn their nose up about platers. So I always say I'm proud to be a plater. Um, the one thing you learn to do when you plate racehorses is nail a shoe on any horse. You know, when I when I go and shoe a Hunter or a cob, and I do still shoe those type of horses it is just a pleasure to knock a big nail into hooves that feel like oak to me I think it's easier to scale up so in other words farriers that start on race horses um, and, then, and then in the end develop to do sports horses and bigger horses uh, find that uh, I'm not saying they find it easy but they find it easier than the guys that try and scale down um, and, of course, you have a, you have a great farrier in the States who started on racehorses like me, Bob Pethick. He he went the same route, and I don't expect he... I think it would be very rare for him to get near a thoroughbred these days. Um, so it, it's a similar thing. If, I think whatever people think, uh, all shoeing is just variation. So uh, they're all transferable skills. But, of course, I never hotshod horses for the first 10 years of my career. And you quite rightly said, I started in 72 and I passed my diploma in 83. So it wasn't that I had an 11 year apprenticeship. It was at that time, it was, um, it was, uh, it was voluntary to to take your diploma. Um, and I had to learn, well, I learned to hot shoe horses then to pass it. And I learned to make shoes for all types of horses. And I found that enjoyable. And in fact, um, although my career in some ways has come full circle, where I'm now back happier working with thoroughbreds, um, I still have a lot of enjoyment, one uh, livery yard that we do, which is only sports horses and leisure horses and hacks. And we do that on a Friday morning. And I have great pleasure in uh, burning on and nailing on a few pairs every Friday morning. I'm not saying I'd have great pleasure if there were ten sets to do, but a few <laughs> pairs make me happy.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It's it's interesting. You really, in different aspects of your career, you you've been all around the world. Uh, you know, not not just throughout the UK and you know US, Dubai, etc. Um, you know, kind of let's fill in that gap a little bit and talk about the as your work progressed and and Mm -hmm. you began to flourish.
1: Okay. So I, I would have to say that after 10 years of just shoeing racehorses and actually I did very little stud farm work then. um, I was starting to vegetate just a little bit. And uh, so I was looking for a challenge and uh, my challenge was taking the diploma. And I, I'm one of those weirdos that actually enjoys examinations. And I know that's, Very few people in this world. Most people get stressed. I just look on them like a quiz or something. And um, so I then decided well, I was going to become an associate and then a fellow. And technically, you're not allowed to do that in under five years. And so that was my aim. Well, it took me seven years. But I think if you don't have an aim, you know, uh, then you never get there. So I didn't quite achieve my aim. But I did it in seven years. So that involved um, really learning how to shoe all all breeds, certainly of British horses, and an awful lot of the skills and the conditions and the lamenesses that that these horses might have. Um, Part of the fellowship is uh, lecturing. Now, I could have no more stood up in front of an audience when I was 20 years old than fly. So I don't know what happened. It wasn't even a gradual process. I just suddenly came to this conclusion that um, uh, what is the worst thing that happens when you give a lecture? Well, people can boo. Maybe they can throw things at you, but they don't do much else. And, and of course, one of the great things about um, lecturing around the world is nobody hears if you have a disaster when you get home. <laughs> so um, so I, I I took to lecturing, Uh, The writing part, um, I had been asked at various times to write uh, articles, you know, horse magazines asked, our Forge magazine asked. And so I had sort of written a little bit, and I actually found I quite enjoyed it. Uh, So here's the funny thing, Jeremy. um, At school, at the age of 16, I failed our English exam. So I have no qualification even in my own language to write which I hope gives all farriers great heart because they're forever saying to me oh you write books I can't write very well or I'm semi-literate and I say listen I I failed our basic exam in England in English Um, and maybe because I wasn't like a lot of farriers so interested at school and um, I would like to think I write a little bit better today But I would have to say um, to a professional journalist that when people talk about um, various uh, grammatical things, I haven't a clue what they're talking about. If they talk to me about a preposition or... I really don't know what they mean. Um, I I can get the difference between a semicolon and a colon, but that's (laughs) probably about as far as it goes. So so I I enjoyed writing. I actually think... um, Sometimes we do our job down, and that shoeing horses is actually quite complex. Um, So I enjoyed the challenge of writing about complex things, uh, trying to put them in a simple way to explain them. So, again, I think that's a challenge. It's different than um, speaking and lecturing, of course. You have to be a little bit more formal in writing. But it's still a similar challenge is to to, is to communicate, in other words. Uh, no, I never had any training in communicating. I never thought about it, but uh, I enjoyed doing it. Really.
0: Yeah, no, a- absolutely. I would say among the books in farriery, the idea of putting complex subjects into easy-to-understand terms, uh, your books have always succeeded in that. And I would remind people you can still find... Uh, Simon's books at uh, Allie Hayes' Horse Science. You can go to her website to order it. uh, uh, fairy, uh Fold to, to Racehorse, and then both volumes of uh, Corrective Farriery. Um, now, uh, you told me earlier you were working on a new book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I can't tell you too much, Jeremy, because
1: right. uh, I'm always – I, th- I think there's not really a worry that somebody would say, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do it. But I, all I can say is that, um, and it's 10 years since I wrote a book, you know, time goes past very quickly. And of course, I sort of got involved in the academic side of life. But um, I, I was suddenly struck by the fact that certainly in the UK, uh, we train our apprentices quite well. And you will have apprentices who will be able to explain to you the blood supply to the foot and the leg the nervous supply, they'll tell you how tendons and ligaments work. You ask them how the hoof grows, and their mouth drops open and they wonder why you're asking it. So I was struck by the fact that as farriers, we have that's the one thing we have in our hand every day. We have the hoof in our hand, and we should be uh, the hoof experts and the Uh, Hoof material experts. In other words, we should understand how it works. So I'm not trying to write an academic book, but I'm actually um, not trying to write a book on the shoeing of the horse because I've done that, Uh, and that doesn't mean I won't do it again, but that's not what this is about. So in other words, there is a chapter on shoeing in this book, but it's not going to be how you shoe or how I think you should shoe. It's going to be what is the effect on the horse, on the horse's hoof when we shoe it. So that's a different way of looking at things. Um, and I'm going to look at the development of the hoof. Now that's what my PhD was about, part of it. So that's the inspiration for the book, really. But that's only the middle section of the book. So, in other words, how does the hoof develop? Um, I happen to think that. The hoof is is absolutely extraordinary, not just because I'm a farrier all the years. I mean, in, in the animal kingdom, uh, it is the extreme of um, uh, development. Um, two German scientists and um, professors described the horse's hoof as the, a miracle of bioengineering. And I believe that uh, they said at the two extremes of integument are horse feathers And hooves, and of course, we never think we would never think about horse feathers when we think about hooves. But that just shows you how developed the hoof is. Um, It's really quite remarkable, and I think again, because we have it in our hand every day, we sometimes forget um, just uh, you know what a tough organ it is. Um, And again, I think sometimes books and, and articles and lectures, of course, concentrate on when things go wrong with the hoof. But, of course, for most of the time, things don't go wrong with the them. It's extraordinarily good at what it's designed to do. So there you go. I've told you more about my book than <laughs> I meant to, but it, it's basically um, not a shoeing book as such. It's not a manual, in other words. Uh, it's not a book that you would go to and say, I have this problem. Uh, this is I want to know uh, an idea of how to fix it. I want to, to read up on it. Um, it, I just want it's going to be a knowledge book and um, and I hope it's going to have a wow factor in that uh, we just learn a little bit more about how to appreciate how complex uh, and, and how remarkable the horse's hoof is
0: yeah absolutely um, and w- I want to talk about your, your PhD work Dr. Curtis but uh, I'm kind of curious about your interest in this, um, like you said, you you know, like uh, where you were at in English uh, back at age sixteen, but you have this very curious nature, and you look throughout, you know, like we said, we talked about the diploma, your your fellowship, PhD. Uh, you have a very curious mind. Number one, you know, going back to the seventies when you were in the trade, you know, was there as much of an understanding? Of the the function of the hoof, or a, a curiosity about it, and then, uh, secondly, what what sparked your interest to to follow your your academic pursuit regarding the foot?
1: Okay, um, no, there was nothing when I started in the seventies. Um, as you know, even in the UK, there was no official apprenticeship. Now, there were apprenticeships, just like there are in the states. And there was only one farrier school at Hereford, which is still there. Um, and the Worshipful Company of Farriers, all three exams were voluntary. Uh, there weren't clinics or workshops. The first clinic I went to was in 1983, just after I took my diploma. And that was a guy making um, bevels for Suffolk horses. And he he said that Because he, you know, I was then in my late 20s, and he was in his um, 60s. And he said that for him to give any information to another farrier was very, very hard. Because he'd shod horses in the 30s, which I'm sure was like in the States, it was very hard times. And he said, anything you knew, you didn't share with your competitors. And um, so there wasn't much on, there were not many educational opportunities Uh, And, of course, that's grown and grown in in recent years, both in the U.K. and and in the States. Um, Okay, so, yes, I was always – I'm glad when you said I have a curious mind. I'm sure you mean that my mind is curious about things as opposed to my (laughs) mind being a a little bit peculiar or something. Um, But, yes, I have a curious mind. Um, Sarah Hobbs always used to say to me that I – uh, was a farrier with an interest in science, and now I am a scientific farrier. So I don't know if that's true, um, but um, I always loved, um, you know, science programs on TV, and um, I'm sure just uh, you have them in the states, and and often they're beautifully filmed and beautifully explained, and so I I only take the view that I'm I'm enjoying learning about the horse's hoof in the same way um and and obviously i'm now trying to do to explain um some of the fascination with the horse's hoof and, and the joy of uh that you know that it that, that we get from knowing more about it um i had never considered any sort of academic career as i say the my, the three exams uh, in the uk uh, were just a challenge to me it was you know my own personal challenge. I set myself that challenge. Uh, Along the way, I decided to do competitions. I think most people, because it was so long ago, don't realize that um, I did do competitions for a few years. And some of the guys that are still really well known, um, I competed against. And I actually uh, beat one of them in competition when he was world champion. I have no doubt uh, that I was on a good day and he was on a bad day. Um, but nevertheless I could sort of just about cut it in the competitions um, but but some of the ones like um, uh, Billy cruthers and, and Jim and that are still known from the UK um, Carl medicine who doesn't hasn't competed for many years but he was in the England scene guys like that I sort of when I say I grew up with at least I knew from my mid-20s and and they were cr- they were really good because as I say there was this thing as there has been in the states about platers but they just thought it was uh, amazing that there was this plater that was uh, making shoes and and the hot shoeing you know and um so they were all very welcoming and supportive which is great and to this day they're still friends 30 and 40 years later uh, so it, it you know i'd always say to people competitions are a good way to make friends um i decided that i either was going to dedicate my life to competitions or I was going to say, I've done it a few years. I wasn't too bad. Get out, you know, uh, um, before it all goes bad. So then um, I it was a, I, I got almost into the political side of things for a while. You know, I went on the our registration council. I've never been big in our association. I've always been a member because I think we should all support our associations. Um, but I never got into that politics. Um, I got into the worship company of farriers because I won uh, two awards, um, and so they got to know me, and so that's how I got into that really. And um, and then I had this period, of course, so then I, I, I got into my academic side, and that's actually taken up 10 years until last year. You know, I did a couple of years doing the degree. Um, and then I've done, uh, then I had a, a year and then I had done six years to earn a PhD. Uh, so that's why I'm writing again. So I've sort of, although I've been a farrier in the same town all my life, I have at least tried to do these other things. And and, and as you mentioned earlier, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to be invited all over the world to speak. I've spoken um, four times uh, at the Hoof Care um, Summit. Uh, so I'm really, um, you know, quite proud of that, being that I think it's 15 years. Is it 15 years? This and
0: it, yes, this is the 15th year. Yeah.
1: So, so that's not too bad. And uh, so much did I love this January. that um, I am uh, putting my hand in my pocket and coming over in January uh, with a couple of other farriers. And do you know what? I'm going to be able to relax and not have to think about any lecture that I'm going to give. And just really enjoy it because, um, uh, you know, I, I still get that uh, enjoyment of mixing with farriers um, uh, all the time. And um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, there's a lot to learn from, from the lectures. But as you know, it's the social side is also really important. Uh, the trade show. Uh, I would say farriers are magpies. They like, I don't know, do you have magpies in the States? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so they're a bird that loves anything that glitters, and they'll steal anything that glitters. And I see the farriers walking around the trade show, and and they want the shiniest <laughs> hammer. So so I and I'm like that as well. I want to look at all the tools and, um, yeah. So I've, I've sort of had this quite um, fortunate wide ranging, and, and I'm and I'm hoping it won't end as well. You know, that I see. I, you know, I've got a couple of invites for next year, which are nice. One in the States, one in Norway, and uh, I've got three and one in Finland so far. So, You never know where the next invite's coming from, really.
0: No, no. As I I told you when I saw you in England, uh, your lectures have rated among the highest in the entire history of the summit. So if anybody listening ever has the opportunity to see you speak, don't don't hesitate. Go into your own pockets and make sure you go if you've never seen Simon speak. Going back to that idea, and I completely agree. The networking aspect, really, of any any event you go to, is is so crucial. Uh, but going back to where you where your career started, it, it wasn't necessarily that way. Of you didn't want to share things with your competitor. What what do you think changed about the industry as a whole? It? And like you said, it wasn't just in the UK. It was in very very important here in the states.
1: Um.
0: I think we hit the good times actually, and farriers
1: start to earn decent money, and therefore they relaxed a bit. They had more time uh, to be able to learn. They were less um, protective, but also this thing of traveling. You know, we are all good friends with the guy that's not on our patch. Um, It's the the difficulty is being uh, the best of pals with a farrier that's um, in your neck of the woods, and. So, I think that's one of the things that changed. That, that when you travel, uh, the other thing, one thing you realize is uh, Bernie Chapman always used to say, Farriers are the same the world over, just the accent changes. <laughs> and I think, you know, there is a certain man- mentality, which is at times good and at times bad. But it, it, so I think we all tend to hit it off. And I, I often speak to Farriers who just don't mix, don't go to educational events. And I try and talk them into it because there almost seems a sort of fear. But the moment you get them to something, whether it's just a little, you know, a lecture evening at a local veterinary clinic or whether it's, you know, a big big convention, um, the moment they go, they love it. And it's because suddenly they realize, um, you know, that there is, you know, they're not threatened. Nobody's questioning their skills. They're just there and enjoying themselves. And they suddenly realise that actually everybody's like them. Um, so I don't even know where I started on that one, actually, Jeremy. I really <laughs> lost track of that one. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, let's uh, get to, to something more recent with your, uh, your PhD work. Uh, tell, tell us about your thesis and, and the path to uh, defending that. Uh, okay.
1: Um, I obviously when you, you have six, six years in a part-time PhD, I really don't know how full-time people either take the pressure or get done because the one thing I learned about a PhD is you need time to mull over your thoughts. There is a reason why it's called, you know, philosophy, a doctor of philosophy. You, you have to think more deeply about it. Um, uh, John Riley, as you know, he, he began as my professor and, um, uh, and he came over to me, with me one time to Cincinnati. And, and John always said that a PhD is, is about uh, drilling deeper and narrower. In other words, you have to go really deep into your subject. But, of course, the frustration is it has to be a, quite a narrow field. And and I still get people saying, why didn't you study this? Why didn't you do that? And, of course, my glib answer is I've left that for you to study. But But the fact is... But one of the complaints from my university was I was trying to study too much. You know, I was a little boy in a sweet shop. I wanted, uh, in a candy shop, I should say, if I'm going to speak American, um, (laughs) is that, you know, I just wanted this and I wanted to try that and that. And you you can't do that in a PhD. But the first year is really about finding out what you want to study, uh, learning some skills, whether it's statistics or scientific writing, learning how to read scientific papers well. Um, but also, um, I was doing some pilot studies and just seeing if I could test things out. So that's a big part of the first year. Um, my second year was about collecting my data. So by by the end of my first year, from the very start, I knew I wanted to study foals, hooves. Um, but I I remember thinking, you know, I really wanted to walk them over force plates, plates. Uh, walk them over, then trim them, then put extensions on and see what happens. A, you try getting the follow to walk over a force plate. And, um, you know, you you don't have horses in the laboratory. You have to use clients' horses. So there's a limitation. So we we ended up where we tried out pressure mat, uh, which you can stand them on and get lots of information. Um, And I tried out different methods of measuring hoof growth. Uh, because there's been there's been quite a lot of papers um, measuring hoof growth of, of mature horses. Um, the only one of the younger horses was Doug Butler's, his PhD. And that was really what we would call yearlings. You know, these were um, from sort of 300 days onwards or 300 to 450 days. So they were yeah, older foals to yearlings. Uh, so nobody had really measured these youngsters. And we all thought that they grew their hooves a lot quicker. Um, But there's a difference between uh, thinking it and measuring it. And, of course, one of the things that came out of my study is not that they just grow a bit quicker. They are twice as fast as their mother. Um, They renew their hoof three times as fast as their mother. Uh, So there's lots of speed. Now, is that important? Um, I think it's important because the faster something grows usually means the faster it changes, and that can be beneficial or it can be detrimental. So if something's going wrong with a hoof of fold, it will go wrong very quickly. But as as farriers who work on folds will tell you, the nice thing about working on them as farriers, if you get things right, you really see your results quickly. So um, so those sort of things I was interested in. Um, as, as you know, my my big thing um, from my PhD. Uh, was that I can measure that hoof compresses. Now, most farriers are not surprised at that, but I have to tell you, scientifically, nobody had ever even suggested it and certainly not measured it. So that's quite a big thing. And and my hope from my work is that people don't say, oh, well, that's just about folds. I don't do folds. I hope they really think uh, this is about the physiology of the hoof. This is the way the hoof works. And therefore, uh, you know, the way I trim it or the way I shoe it will bring about this effect of compression. And compression of horn explains an awful lot of things. You know, the, the very simple thing of where well, we all believed that a horse got a club foot because the hoof was growing faster at the heel than the toe. In some ways, that's still true. But of course, nobody ever said maybe the toe's compressing. And actually, I think that's more what's happening. The, the, the heel is not compressing, but the toe is. So, so when you start looking at um, hoof deformation in a different way like that, then I think farriers will start thinking about different strategies. Uh, so in other words, it's probably 15 or 20 years since I know it was uh, written about and, and spoken about uh, putting on a heart bar to unload heels that are collapsed. And everybody will say, well, look how fast those heels grow. My point is that the horn at the coring band is not being generated any quicker in those cases. What it means is that that horn is not being compressed after it's been generated. So that's a different way to look at it. So in other words, when we know things, instead of arriving at um, shoeing strategies by luck, we might start arriving at them uh, through logic and, and, you know, and rational thinking.
0: Yeah, do you think that's, uh, you mentioned earlier, farriers wouldn't necessarily be surprised by the the, the idea of compression. Uh, do you think that's what the, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not freezing this correctly, but the the chasm between where veterinarians are and where farriers are as farriers are operating by trusted practice from, from experience and not necessarily basing a lot on, on maybe research that hasn't existed?
1: Uh, no, uh, yeah, you're quite right. They, the, the, the farriers base it on that. But you know, veterinary surgeons, um, certainly in the UK, are forever telling me um, why, why um, do, do farriers not base uh, their work on science? I have to tell you, vets are just as bad as farriers. They, they sound more scientific uh, to both us and to the clients. They are no more scientific than farriers. Once they get in their head a method, no scientific in the p- paper in the world will change them. You know, they talk about evidence-based practice. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is the interview I had with uh, my big professor, who I only met a couple of times in my whole PhD, he actually told me almost his words were were almost to stop trying to be too scientific and trust my judgment you know in other words he was saying uh, you've had 40 years of experience shoeing horses you've had four or five years of academia um, you know he said i know what i would trust most your 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 practical ability uh, so i probably allowed the the pendulum to swing too far to all sides there is nothing wrong with long-term customs. And the reason most of them are long-term is because they're good. But it, we still have to challenge them all the time. In other words, you know, uh, again, there's also the case that because something's been done 100 years, it doesn't mean it, uh, it, it isn't the wrong thing to have been done 100 years. So I think as long as we, we challenge what we do, we shouldn't be frightened of long-term uh, practice because that's the biggest laboratory we've got. And so we, we still can't test all these things in a laboratory. We, we have a big job of even just how to measure them, you know, how to measure effects. Um, in the end, we often come back just to opinion. I, I think, so I think we're getting the balance right. I'm, I'm certainly never suggesting that either... A huge number of areas should become scientists or they should throw away their traditional skills and just go by what's in the scientific paper. I think, I think the thing is um, that hopefully there will be more and more science which will be um, applicable by traditional methods. And we, we need to help the vets in science, whether they know it or not. I mean, you know one person who really knows it, which who is um, Professor Bella. She knows that she needs the help of barriers. And actually, um, Professor John Riley was just like that as well. Um, he, he knew that because vets definitely look at the hoof in a totally different way. Um, and we also have to remember that vets are not trained to be scientists. As I say, we might think of them, and some of them become scientists, but they're trained to treat animals, so they as well have a different view. Um, neither of my uh, supervisors for my PhD was a vet. Uh, Dr. Sarah Hobbs is an engineering scientist. Uh, she applies her engineering skills to the horse's hoof. Um, and um, Dr. Jamie Martin, is a, he, he is a scientist um, in large animals, but more in agriculture. And so scientists are scientists. They, and, uh, and one of the things I really loved about having Sarah as a supervisor was the fact that she was an engineer. She looked at the hoof from an engineering point of view. About it. She looked at it from her properties. And most people don't realise that actually her PhD was on the horse's hoof.
0: Um,
1: but she came at it from, from a different direction. And, um, and we sort of need that uh, as well. Um, we just need a big mixture of people from, with different skills looking at the hoof and helping us. I mean, we've seen how uh, there hasn't really been any new glues in the last 10 years, but suddenly 15 or 20 years ago, there was an exclo- explosion of glues. How much that has helped, you know, farriers. Um, we're still not at the perfect glue-on shoe. We're, we seem to be a long way from it. But at least lots of guys are trying and, and applying um, imagination uh, to coming up with a solution, um, you know. And, and all of that is, comes from science,
0: initially. Yeah. yeah. How, going back to like the different groups, how, what do you see the big difference specifically between how farriers look at the, the foot and how veterinarians look at it?
1: That would seem to me a very loaded question. <laughs> but I will do my best to answer it as diplomatically as possible. Okay, here's the first thing, uh, and I'm really not being derogatory to vets, but when farriers see a lame horse trotting towards them, their first thought is, oh goodness me, I hope I haven't lamed this horse. Uh, vets see it and they go, ka-ching. All right, so there is a different philosophy. A lame horse for a vet, they will always tell you, because they have to earn a living, that it's not good news. Well, I know lots and lots of vets who only work on lame horses, so they would be um, starving to death if there weren't lame horses. Barriers don't want to see lame horses. Um, And so that's that's an immediate difference in philosophy. I I think we were talking just earlier about um, how about farriers and about custom. I think farriers intu- uh, intuitively know that uh, we have to protect the who structure. And again, over the last twenty years, there's been qu- quite a debate about, well, for example, the four-point trim and 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 um, uh, Mustang roll. And but, but the way I take most of that is how do we get the breakover point back without destroying the structure of the hoof wall. Um, m- my experience of even very experienced vets and, and well-known vets is that they, because they don't have the same ho- feeling for the hoof wall, they see the hoof as just um, almost a solid, job, a solid object. So when 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 they're asking for a horse to be trimmed in a certain way. Uh, they're not considering the problems that the farrier has of name, sure on. They're not considering that, that possibly rasping that wall into a straight, straight line may be destroying some of the important structures and there might be better ways to achieve the biomechanics um, without um, damaging the structure. So I think they see that. Um, I think they also occasionally have this thing um, where they see a, a misshapen hoof and it's almost to the farrier, well, how can you possibly have allowed that? Or, you know, and I say to the vets, well, unless every foot in the yard is like that, I don't think we can blame the farrier, can we? You know, we, we have to accept that that um, there are some horses that, that have problems and imagining just because the farrier works on it... Um, it, it, you know, it must be the farrier's fault. Uh, I don't know any, you know, all all horses die in the end. I don't know any vets that take a personal responsibility for every horse that dies. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes horses die of a disease uh, and you can't blame it uh, on the vet. And sometimes horses have a laminitic condition or have crushed heels and long toes. And that doesn't mean that that is the farrier's problem. The other side of the coin might mean that good farriery can help it. But I actually think very few farriers actually cause problems. I think very good farriers um, overcome problems better. But I I don't actually believe that that there are many foot problems directly caused by farriers. I think, as I say, we're left carrying the can sometimes for them and sometimes unreasonably.
0: Do you think that's ever going to change?
1: Um, probably not I think um, I think it's not just a, either a chip on the shoulder or barriers having a whine but um, you know veterinary surgeons are almost to a, a, a man or woman very intelligent people and they are highly educated they are very articulate now there are certainly fat, some farriers that fit into that category but most barriers are both less educated and less articulate uh, so who wins the debate well the person who's most articulate and uh, in many cases who 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 in the end has the uh, confidence of the owner and I'm I'm really sorry to talk about that because that's making everything sound like it's conflict and and obviously there are always um, great things uh, where, where there's great collaboration, where we can do things the vet can't and the vet can do things we can't. And I said to you earlier, I was at Rossdale's, which is the big veterinary hospital, which I retired from three years ago, but I actually worked on a fold today and it was really nice to be back there, um, you know, talking to the veterinary surgeon who had called me in and, and to the owners and, and having a collaborative effort. Uh, to try and get this foot on this um, six-month-old foal and, and and get some improvement. Uh, so I don't want to sound as if I've, I've got a downer on the vets. I I haven't. I just I do actually think there is a communication problem, and I think just like us, they have a mortgage to pay, and sometimes that uh, is in conflict uh, with um, absolute. Mm. I was Going to say ethical behavior, but that's done. I, what I mean is absolute. Um, <laughs> should we say that they, they might be slightly swayed, in other words? And, um, and uh, I, I actually think that, that farriers, unless I've been fortunate in the farriers I meet, um, are less ingenuous than that. In other words, farriers, as I say, they see a lame horse, and their first thought is, I hope that's not me, and they also really feel, um, for the horse, uh, first of all, and their, their priority is to fix the horse, you know, they're not stupid, they have to earn some money, but their first priority, with most farriers, with the vast majority, is fix the horse.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, let's uh, then shift it to the positive side, and uh, you know, the success you've had throughout your career at Rossdale's and, and, and other places often has involved vets, uh, but also farrier colleagues. How do you, how do you build good relationships? Uh, with colleagues.
1: Well, having sounded just earlier as if I was knocking the vets, I would say to young farriers, "Do one good job that a vet called you in for, and you'll have a friend for life because you've just made them look good. So um, so vets are very helpful in in building that. The um, a colleague thing, again, it is this 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 problem that I would say that vets, large, don't have a problem. With um, referring into a vet hospital, uh, where where they know the vet hospital can do work that they can't do if they're a vet working on their own. Barriers uh, still have a little bit of a problem uh, doing the referring, and I try and say to barriers that actually they're in a stronger position if they say to their horse owner, look, for example, I don't do glue shoes, but your horse here's need glue shoes. Listen, I'm going to phone my friend now or my colleague and see if they can fit you in. You think how strong a position that puts the farrier in. Mm-hmm. He's not going to lose the work. It's going to come back to him as soon as the horse is fixed. He's going to look far better in in the eyes of, of his client. And just like when we go to our doctor and they refer us to a specialist, we we don't say about our doctor, why couldn't they do that? We say, it's great. My doctor recognized the problem and got me straight you know, to the hospital or to the to the consultant or specialist. Um, so we, I think um, there are farriers that act like that. And actually the, the, the phone I went to see today was referred um, by a farrier I've never met who just said to the owner, I know the guy that you need uh, to work on this phone. Um, so we need, to, we, if we do that, if we communicate better. But anyway, your original question was about... Um, <clears throat> was about how you build those relationships. The other thing I think that's important in life is always try and mix with the best. and and one of the ways of doing that is to go to educational events. Um, and you know, as long as you're not a pest with the speakers, you know speak directly to them. They're not they're neither gods, nor are they are they not going to speak to you. And um, speakers at conferences love communicating. Uh, with all the people there, um, I know I have a joke, Jeremy. It might have even heard me say when because people that then ask a question during the at the end of the lectures, they then surround you as soon as you get off the podium. And my joke is always, uh, you know, I'm on overtime now. You have to buy me a pint of beer, and then and then I'll answer any question you want, which is of course only a joke. But but I think that that is the thing if you communicate and meet up with good people all your life, then very few will let you down. Um, and and I think that's got nothing to do with barrier. That's got to do with life, that you you mix with the right people and um, and you pick up on their, their, their skills and their methods. And, of course, nobody ever agrees 100% with anybody else, and there's nothing wrong with that if we have uh, professional disagreements and you will meet... All of us will meet uh, really good people and think, "Yeah, I agree with ninety percent of what they say, but not ten percent." That's fine. That's that's life. Uh, So that would be my best advice: is get a you know you don't you don't get new skills and new knowledge by just working on your own horses and not um, not communicating with any other farriers or any vets. Um, it's the opposite that you have to do. You have to force yourself to communicate and travel and take time often away from your family and, um, you know, even time away from just earning a dollar. You know, you. that but in the end, it'll it'll pay you back, um, you know, many fold, really.
0: Yeah, I piggyback onto what you said, and now you would say this is true with you, but I think often younger farriers... They'll see names of competitors. They'll see names of lecturers and, and be intimidated at, at, say, the summit or the convention or some other event. Uh, but I, I think they'll, they'll always be surprised at how you and others are, are very approachable uh, and, and to not, not, not be dissuaded. Don't, don't feel intimidated and, and uh, always realize that networking is the, the great benefit of going to really any educational event. Um, so, going back to something you talked about, and yeah, uh, you have your PhD, that's not going to be the common place among among other farriers, in fact, I think, is there only maybe just one other with... with no, doc- there's, there's two other now. All right, Do- Dr. Caldwell and uh, Mark and, Caldwell and and, and... and Dr. Chris Pardo, who you... Dr. Have, Chris Pardo, me. correct. So He was the
1: first. Yeah. He was 10 years ago. Um, and he did his with Renata Vella um, down in at the University of London at the vet school there. Um, and, uh, I was, the funny thing was, uh, Renata used to love it when I saw her because I'd say, how's he getting on every time you see? And, um, uh, and whenever he saw me, he used to say, don't ask, you know, I know what you're going to ask. Um, so yes, he got his, um. I achieved mine officially last February, but actually by the time I went to the summit in January, my university, even my university was calling me doctor, but the um, actual official didn't come through till February. Um, and of course, Mark Holwell did brilliantly, and he's, he, he got his PhD in the last <clears throat> couple of weeks. So, so yes, there's three of us. Mm. And, um, and I had a thing, I, I often... Try and avoid Facebook debates a little bit because as we know they can suddenly start going down the wrong channel but uh, there was certainly debate and people didn't quite understand this and said is there a doctorate in farriery? Well no but in a way there's not a doctorate in anything you know they are all PhDs anybody you see with PhD uh, now of course they study a particular subject uh, and mine was um, equine physiology and biomechanics, and obviously my part of that uh, was the foal's hoof. Um, you would have to ask um, both uh, Mark or Chris exactly what there was in, you know, and, and I would have to say universities are very good at, uh, you know, it's it's okay if you're a university where uh, they've got a 100 people studying, I don't know, rocket science or whatever they call it, but most of the time, actually, if you look even at big universities, the number of PhD students in one department is often relatively small, um, and they're very good at adapting. So the other thing people don't understand is that there isn't a course that gets you through that. You design your own course, which is what I was talking about the first year I spent doing that. You certainly have to prove to university that you have certain skills, and um, and I had to do just one two week course. So there aren't actual lectures that you are set to go to. Um, there's certainly certain skills they demand you acquire in the first year of your PhD to allow you to continue. But it, but in other words, it's not a taught thing. You've you've got through that. You know that's what you did in your undergraduate um, degree. So you build your own course, and you you know I went off to both. Uh, University of Utrecht in Holland and the University of Berlin in Germany um, and because I identified that was where there were some of the things I needed to learn. Utrecht is very good at analysing uh, locomotion in horses and uh, Berlin uh, is very good at actually making slides from horses' hooves. The Germans are extremely good at... Uh, at looking at anatomy and um and that's where I went to learn to make slides of hooves which I needed to do to do my microscopy uh, study of my uh, both fetal hooves and and pediatric holes hooves so so you have to do it yourself you know and um I mean I really don't know in a way how other PhD students do it so you, it's a little bit lonely at times you know you don't you know, there isn't a set template of what you do. Uh, you certainly have to have lots of meetings with your supervisors. That's where you get most guidance. And um, like most ferries, I on occasions leave things a little bit late. But the, the way I dealt with that myself was I always told my supervisors what I would have done by the next meeting. And and I have very few virtues, but one of my virtues is that if I tell somebody I'm going to do something, I do it every time, um, and and that was my way of making me do it. Uh, so when I it was all passed and done, they actually, you know, remarked on that and said how every meeting I went to, I had everything ready and um, and I'd done what I said. Now in the rest of my life, if you saw my my shoeing van. It's like a lot of Farris Sheen bands. It's cluttered. Somewhere I know there's some notes. Somewhere I know I've written from last month the horse, but I forgot to put its name down. But I know the day I shot it. You know, so I'm just like Faris in other ways. But when it comes to doing a PhD, you have to be organized. And I... So it wasn't just science I learned. I finally learned how to be a more organized person. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got through it.
0: Sure. So uh, going back to what you said in... Uh, yeah, it's, it's a rare thing uh, for, for farriers. We're not going to see a huge influx <laughs> now into PhD programs. Yeah. But the idea of challenging your work on a daily basis and questioning, uh, how, how, do you, how do you employ that into your daily work? Uh, so, you okay. know, we're, farriers are often, even though we've talked about networking, we're, uh, we're still looking at it as a, a, the job often by an individual.
1: Okay, how do I employ employ that in my daily work? Um, I, because i s you know the biggest part of my business now is folds, and my whole thing was on folds i I probably look at hoof deformation in a slightly different way. I'm probably more controlled in trying to trim folds and put extensions on uh, in order to help the leg or help the hoof. Um, i I understand a little bit better. Uh, I understand better the actual loading patterns on the folds hoop. I know that's a hard thing to get across, but but when you when you spent a whole year, uh, I think I put um, thirty five foals on about uh, twelve times each. Um, you know, you see a lot of loading patterns, and you start to put the two together. Now that so that's a personal thing for me. That's not something I can give out that information, but on. On the other side of it, when you said about that there is an increase in the number and not all these farriers have to go for PhDs, I know a couple in the UK that are looking to do masters, we're still getting a trickle of um, uh, farriers with degrees come through. Where that will be important is um, scientists and veterinary colleges will be far keener to employ those barriers in research. And since those farriers hopefully will be able to guide the vets more in the direction of, uh, of the sort of practical needs that we have, um, then, then I think in the end we will start getting more information that will help us. It's, it will take years and years. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example that, you know, there's not a farrier in this world that won't tell you where the best place to put screw-in studs into a horseshoe. Do you know how many of them know where to put in screwing studs? Not one. We all have an opinion. Now, that is a pretty basic thing. The only reason I can tell you why it hasn't been tested is that studs wreck pressure mats. They destroy them. So you cannot run a horse over. In fact, when they run horses over pressure mats, they make sure there isn't even a nail sticking up. That's the problem. But that's the sort of thing that I hope we will start getting Um, some information. Uh, You know, show jumpers, the number of show jumpers I shoe in a year, you can count on one hand. But nevertheless, again, farriers would, um, you know, and horse owners do not know what studs work best on what surfaces. Those sort of things can be tested now. They're not easy to test, but they can be tested. You know, there are... um, There are ways of of putting markers on horses and filming them and testing the surfaces. So in the end, that sort of information needs to feed back in. In other words, instead of everybody having a different opinion and the person with the strongest opinion or the most plausible argument wins, but it isn't necessarily true. um, You know, we have to start getting past that sort of thing in my lifetime. We've gone through a period of uh, shoeing horses with uh, greater width and more length. And now we seem to be recoiling from that. And we're doing that because of persuasive arguments. Um, uh, You know, there there are a number of, shall we say, fads that have come and gone. Uh, We should be able to test those. And most things are testable if there's enough money and there's enough will and there's enough time. Uh, and one of the things that that that's one of the things about PhDs. There's this trade-off. You get your PhD, but you've contributed something um, that gives knowledge. And, and my university was quite strong on this, and I think certainly most are in the UK, and I would imagine in the US, that they do not want research for research's sake. All the way along, you were asked how will this contribute to your your industry? Will this have an impact on your industry? Um, you know, what What will be learned from it. And you actually have to convince your university of that um, uh, because it, it's gone past the point where, you know, we don't want research just for research's sake. We want something to come out of it. Now, having done that, of course, you learn a lot of things along the way, which, you know, as I, I, I've said, don't necessarily... Influence the way I trim the foot or shoot the foot, but I quite like the wow factor as well. Of uh, you know, wow! I didn't realise the hoof did this, or the hoof is capable of this. Um, uh, you know, so so there is nothing wrong with that. But I think that that's the trade-off with a university that you are supposed to supposed to contribute um, to your industry now. Uh, you'd have to argue, is my industry the horse industry or is my industry the farrier industry? Um, my my heart, as as you know, is is being a farrier. That's where my heart is. So I have to say to myself, um, uh, you know, I want farriers to succeed, but I want them to succeed and benefit the horse. But I know what comes first to me. Uh, when I was um, convincing my university, do you think I put it that way around? No, I put it round. <laughs> I want to benefit the horse and I'd like my, my craft to benefit as well. Of course, that's, that's what we have to do.
0: Yeah. I, I recall a conversation we had maybe six or seven years ago and, talking about questioning your own work as an individual farrier, uh, you know, and, and being skeptical, but not cynical. Uh, you know, for those who aren't going to, to, you know, that, there's a distance to, they're not going to be involved in academics, but they want to to analyze their own work or question their own work. What advice do you have of how to look at your work uh, or how to take in new ideas and question them, uh, getting back to the idea of being skeptical but not cynical?
1: Okay, well, it, it is a balance. I, I always tried to be My own biggest critic without beating myself up about it. Um, I hate it when I hear areas condemning their own work. Um, You know, I know that might sound like that's a rarity, but it does happen. And it it especially happens in an environment where they think some of their peers are, in their mind, you know, have achieved more or, or what have you. So you need to become critical of your own work without beating yourself up about it. Um, I, I think, uh, again, it is, um, a question of, you're only ever going to confront your work when you meet up with other farriers and you discuss things on, on an even even plane. So whether, as I say, whether that's a, just a simple farrier evening or a barbecue or whether it's a big convention, um that's where these things are discussed. Um, I actually really do genuinely find that the, the barriers that, that the more they mix, they mix, the more they're confident of their work, but also confident enough to criticize their own work. And um, I think from the point of view of self-education, you know, we have all these opportunities now, we have um, written, you know, we have, um, American Paris Journal. We have uh, one in Europe, one in the UK. We have these uh, conventions, and 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 that's the only way to um, to escape. I I still know, you know, there's there's one or two Paris in my neck of the woods in, in, in Newmarket who I am friends with because I've known them thirty forty years. I have never ever seen them at any lecture or event or anything. Um, and I know that, you know, they, they they keep their clients because they have many other skills and they're experienced. Um, but they they have never moved on and they don't get new clients. Um, I certainly, even um, a, a job that I did overseas from the UK recently, um, you know, I was flown a long way to do that job. And the farrier said he wasn't well that day, so he couldn't turn up and see me. Now, I was clearly not trying to steal his work. I was certainly not going to fly, I don't know, 6,000 miles every month or every six weeks to shoe a few horses. Um, And I just thought it was a pity, and I was talking to another local farrier there, and they said exactly that, that he never... There was a bunch of farriers who communicated with each other, but he was not one of them. And, And, you know... It just didn't look good. I was no threat to him. Um, but you imagine what the horse owner thought when, when, when they had flown me all that distance and their farrier cannot or suddenly finds they're ill uh, and, and can't turn up. So I, I think we have to, uh, you know, maybe some characters, you can, some people you can't change their character and that you know, there they will always be that. Um, but I think uh, for ourselves, um, you know, we always have to confront that. Um, you know, I, I've had that. Um, I had that certainly a lot when I was younger, where uh, a more experienced farrier, you know, a client would say, I want so and so to look at this, or I want them to shoe this particular horse. And yeah, occasionally I had to really bite my tongue, but you act professionally and you work with them. And actually, one of them, is still a very, very good friend of mine. And he's retired from shoeing now. So you have to deal with it professionally, really. Yeah, And, and then you get more out of it.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's kind of a common thing uh, we see in the States, um, or maybe a common complaint is uh, the threat of when a, a farrier is brought in to help remedy a situation, yeah. but uh, uh, the case is I think it's it's mistaken where the the other farrier may assume the horse may be turned over to them or something. It's um, not in every case, but uh, it's something I often hear.
1: Yeah. And um, I think the, the better you deal with it, in the end, the better your business is, you know, that um, because actually the guy coming in uh, certainly – you know, half of me—I'd have to say about this guy—and we were only talking a couple of months ago. Half of me was glad because I—I actually feel uncomfortable as well going in, going in a place and being asked to work with a fairy who clearly they're not fully confident of. Otherwise, they wouldn't have asked me in. So, um, so I think what people forget is that actually uh, the guy coming in also feels uncomfortable. So the quicker you sort of. Shake hands and say, you know, I hope we can work together on whatever words we use. Uh, the quicker everybody gets on, and everybody, and it looks professional and it is professional. And the person that really appreciates it is the one paying the bills, which is, you know, the horse owner.
0: Okay. So, it's a final question. We we've we're talking about your book. We've we've covered your book. Uh, yeah. Uh, for what you're willing to share about it, you, you have your PhD. Uh, you're still lecturing around the world. What interests you now? What What's a typical day? How often are you still getting out with horses? Well, I um,
1: I shod. I put eight pairs of shoes on this morning. That's probably four more than I do most days. So I'm. I, I still haven't achieved it, but I'm trying to work uh, just Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, Monday for the eight years was my academic day so I'd sort of got in the mode for Monday most of my clients don't want me there on a Monday anyway uh, it was only when I was really busy they either had me on a Monday or or I didn't go so so, that, so I'm trying to keep Monday free and I'm using that time to write my next book um, I, I'm wanting to move to Fridays to do that uh, but you know the, the, the thing is when you stop running around in circles trying to shoe every horse on earth, you actually enjoy it more. Now, that might be a luxury I've got because, you know, I've paid the house and all those sort of things. So so I understand that that might sound, you know, to a 30-year-old farrier, uh, might seem a mile off. But, you know, Hank McEwen, who was just one of the loveliest men I ever met, and I know he passed away a... a a short time ago, uh, Hank said to me uh, that you can either shoe lots of horses, you know, you have so many horses in your body, or you can do six a day, and you'll be able to do that in your 60s, or I can still remember he said, or better than that, make your own shoes and shoe five a day, and you'll last a long time. And so that's good advice. And whatever people think, I might have been a racehorse plater, but I was never one of these doing 12 or 15 sets of shoes in a day or plates. In fact, my record day was 11 sets on my own. And I don't want to do that again. And, and you know, I have not starved to death. So I, I actually think, um, uh, you know, that, that if you always try and do quality work, Whatever country you are in the world or whatever part of the country, in the end you'll migrate to getting the, the top end of earnings in your area. And hopefully if you're sensible with your money, and um, I was always too boring to spend it on a fast car or, um, or even worse than that, a fast horse. Um, although they have a saying that the way to lose your money is um, fast women and slow horses in Newmarket. um <laughs> So, uh, but I, you know, so, yeah, I have that luxury now where I'm trying to do what I want. But what, the funny thing is one of the things I want to do is still keep doing some some work with horses as a farrier because I think if you shoe too many horses, um, then it, it does kill you. It breaks your body, and we all know farriers where it's done that. On the other hand, it is cheaper than a gym membership. So if you just shoe one or two, you know... It helps keep you fit. You get out there, you're interested, you meet people. Um, I, I still get great joy with um, training apprentices. Most of the time I get great joy, um, you know. When I looked at one to the, one of my apprentices today and asked him where the shoes were, and he said they're back in the forge. Now, fortunately, we were only three miles away, um, you know, I still get I get great joy with um, apprentices, um, and and as you know I get great joy with um, the lectures and even the writing. Every now and again, like anybody, I I get to a point where I really don't want to look at another word. And I got to a point last year where I actually didn't want to give another lecture because it, after my PhD it went a little bit crazy, uh, the invites. But it's now settled down again. So so I still enjoy all that, Jeremy, and. Um, I just got to keep um, keep myself fit and healthy, and and um, my aim is to enjoy another ten years of it. Really, I don't know whether that's
0: possible, but you never know. I'd like to thank Simon for joining us in this episode. I'd also like to thank SmartPack for sponsoring it. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, please post it to this podcast page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening.